Let's turn to Romans chapter 5. That's Romans chapter 5, not Revelation chapter 5. And if you need a copy of God's Word, just get the attention of one of the ushers. They'll be certain to get one into your hands. Romans chapter 5, I'll meet you there in a minute. And it'll be the first of a couple of, of uh, scriptures that I want uh, you to see in your own Bible for yourself. Romans 5. We've been studying the book of Revelation, of course, in order to know what to expect in the days ahead, the end times, as they're often called. What to expect in order to hold fast and keep the faith, not what to expect in order to become, you know, fatheads when it comes to eschatology and the study of end times and all that stuff, but to, to know what to expect in order to hold fast in those days and keep the faith. Whether the final days unfold in our lifetime or our grandkids or our great-great-grandkids, whatever it is, we need to know in order to persevere in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to know. And having left off at the end of chapter 19, if you recall the end of June, at the end of the Battle of Armageddon and the Great Tribulation, we now enter a new stage in the end times chronology. But before we go there, I want to review our progress and connect it to our personal eschatology, if I can coin that phrase. I, I want to I connect what we've learned and eventually what is ahead with our own personal future. Connecting the dots between our own life after death and the future of the world after all of the carnage and the death of the Great Tribulation as we see in Revelation chapter 6 to 19. Our personal eschatology with general eschatology. That's the idea. And I've titled it, What Happens When We Die. And it's not going to be just a one-off. It's going to span several weeks, this little mini-series. Several weeks under this heading of what happens when we die. It's not as long as the original mini-series I preached on this topic some 11 and a half years ago. Uh, but it's long enough to bring us to the doorstep of Revelation 20 and cover all of the basis and get us into the millennium. And so I trust that you're up for that, and I trust that the Lord will use that to minister in your heart and soul and not only give you great peace in knowing what is ahead for you personally when you die, but give you great anticipation for it and great confidence in it as well. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and get started. The Apostle Paul is writing, and he says, Therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Let's stop there. The first point that I want to establish is that we're all going to die. We're all going to die. I know, I know, you came all the way to church for that. But it's true, and it bears repeating, I think. It needs repeating. Because we don't talk about it much. We don't talk about death. It's, it's kind of a, a sterile thing separate from us. We don't encounter it up close and personal very often in the course of life unless there's some tragic accident or tragic happening. Usually others, you know, take care of that for us. We don't talk about it much. And plus it's a tender topic for some. Maybe that's you having just lost a loved one recently. 
and you don't like to go there, you don't like to think about it, let alone talk about it, because it grips you emotionally. And for many, I think it's just a flat-out scary topic, death, even for believers. But the bottom line is that unless Jesus returns in our lifetime, every single one of us is going to breathe a last breath. Every single one of us is going to breathe a final breath. It's painfully obvious from experience in those around us, and it's explicitly clear in the scriptures. Look at the verse again. Death spread to all men. It couldn't be clearer. Death spread to all men. All are going to die. We're all going to die. And even more succinct is 1 Corinthians 15, 22 in four words. In Adam all die. And that is, as part of his lineage connected to him, we're all going to perish. All of us. In fact, the book of Hebrews says that it's appointed for man to die. God numbers our days, we find in the Psalms, and he has appointed the day that we will die before we're ever a gleam in our parents' eyes. It's appointed. The Bible is clear, and experience proves it. That much is obvious. What's not so obvious is why. Like, why do we die? Oh, sure, there are the biological and the medical reasons. Our, our cells begin to te deteriorate and break down in the cellular walls, and, and that spreads to the organs and so on and so forth. We deteriorate physically, slow down, and eventually give out, yes. But the Bible gives us other reasons. The Bible gives us the reasons behind those reasons. The, the Bible gives us the spiritual reasons for why we will die. And it all starts with sin. We're going to die, every single one of us, because of sin. Every single one of us is going to die because of sin. Sin as in disobedience, unbelief, disobedience toward God, unbelief in God, and rebellion against God. Sin. Sin as in missing the mark or falling short of his holy standard, infinitely short of his perfect holy standard. Sin. And it results in death. Even one sin results in death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The consequences of sin is death. Physical death and spiritual death. Both and. The end of our physical experience on earth, part of the consequences of sin, the wages of sin, end of our physical exi uh, existence on earth, and apart from Christ, the beginning of our suffering in hell. Spiritual death. But in Christ, praise God, it's just physical. It's just physical death. There are no spiritual consequences. Nor is our physical death some, I don't know, leftover aspect of our punishment, our, our punishment for sin. Yes, we all die because of sin, but in Christ, we don't die as a punishment for sin. There's a big difference. Like Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid our full punishment. Rather, those in Christ still die physically because the death of death itself hasn't transpired 
Death has not yet been swallowed up in victory. The full effect of our redemption has not yet come about in our lives. It's, it's not fully consummated in us and for us and through us. Plus, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood, our physical bodies, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What he has prepared for us in the new heavens and the new earth and heaven as we think of it now, in between now and then, cannot inherit, flesh and blood cannot inherit that stuff, cannot inhabit those places. We can't receive the fullness of our inheritance in our present physical state. Our physical bodies have to cease. They have to cease in order for us to be with God in heaven and then eventually on the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever, world without end. We have our physical bodies have to cease, and they have to give way to glorified bodies, just like the glorified body of Jesus that he is currently in, having risen from the grave. We have to be like him. And so even as followers of Christ, we still die because death itself hasn't died, and we must die in order to inherit all that God has prepared for us. And it's all because of sin. All because of the sin of the world and the ill effects that it has had and continues to have on every single one of us. But it's not just sin in general and our sin that leads to death. It's our sin and Adam's sin. That's the next thought I want you to be clear about. We're all going to die because of our sin and Adam's sin. The Adam of Genesis 1 to 3. We're all going to die because we not only sin ourselves, but Adam sinned for us. True, true. It's both and. First, because Adam, Adam opened the door to sin. Three reasons here that Adam's sin in and of itself condemned us just as much as our sin condemns us. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12 again. It says, Sin came into the world through one man. That's referring to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Sin came into the world through one man. And death came into the world through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. You remember the story of uh, the Trojan horse when you were in school? Somebody tell me you're with me on this? All right, there's a few of you who remember. The rest of you were sleeping in that class period. Trojan horse, the, the Greek soldiers, they were able to take over and conquer the city of Troy. But you remember by, by giving this large wooden horse as a gift, at least that's what the inhabitants of Troy thought. And they thought, man, they're giving up on the siege. They're leaving us a, a gift, maybe a gift to the gods. By the way, we're not even sure if this is a real story or if it's just myth, but it's a great illustration of chapter 5, verse 12 right here, okay? So, bear with. so they give this, this horse. They leave it outside the city gates. The, the army goes away, at least without, out of sight. And eventually, the inhabitants of Troy are like, 
awesome. Let's bring this thing in. It's, it's super cool. And so they open the gates of the city. They pull the horse in. And they're kind of standing around looking at it, not knowing what to make of it. Eventually night falls. They all go to sleep. And lo and behold, there are soldiers, Greek soldiers, inside that Trojan horse. They unlock it. They come out. And under the cover of darkness, they reopen the gates. The army, Greek army floods in. And the city is conquered. And death takes over. That's verse 12. Sin was the Trojan horse containing the plague of death welcomed by Adam. He opened the door, the door of this world. Sin, so it says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And it didn't take long after he opened the door for the contagion of death to spread because Everyone after Adam has opened the door as well, the door of our heart, and sinned ourselves. Indulging so that death follows. Not only that, but we're all going to die because Adam is considered our representative in sinning. He opened the door to sin, and he's consider, he is considered our representative in sinning. Just like Jesus is considered our representative in righteousness. Just like. Look at verse 18. Skip down there a few verses. Therefore, Paul says, he's been talking about all of this in these intervening verses. Therefore, as one trespass, that's Adam's sin, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, a.k.a. death, so one act of righteousness, that's Christ's death and resurrection, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. It's an analogy that Paul sets up here and that requires both parts be true, that just as one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for us, so one act of sin led to death for us. Adam's sin, the first part of the verse, look at there again, led to guilt and death for all, led to condemnation for all. The only reason for which, the only way that it makes sense is that God considers Adam to be our representative, our representative in sinning. That is, when he sinned, we essentially sinned. You might think of it like this. The world looks on the President of the United States in which we live, the world looks on the President as our representative, that what he does, we essentially do. He is our representative, God help us. The point being, that's exactly how God looks on us through Adam. When Adam sinned, he was our representative in so doing, and therefore God considers his sin our sin. We're all going to die because Adam not only opened the door to sin, but Adam sinned as our representative. He sinned on our behalf, just as if we sinned. Just like Jesus died and rose again on our half, on our behalf, just as if we had never sinned. The analogy is gold, and it's true for our lives. What's more, third here, 
We inherited Adam's sin nature. We're all going to die because of sin, our sin and Adam's sin, because Adam opened the door to sin. Adam is considered our representative in sinning, and we inherited Adam's sin nature. Look at verse 19. For as by the one man's, he, cont- he continues and expands on it, says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the, that it, that's the obedience of Jesus, the many will be made righteous. In other words, just as we inherit the righteousness of Christ by faith, we inherit the sinfulness of Adam by birth. That's the idea. When he sinned, we were made Sinners. That's what it says. Check it out there again. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. How? How can that be? By inheriting his sinfulness. By, By receiving his sin nature passed on to us through the seed of man down through the generations. All of which leads to death for every single one of us. It's the painfully obvious fact of life, and those are the foundational spiritual reasons, unavoidable reasons for it. The question is, what happens when we die? Our death and the reasons for it may be apparent to you, but maybe what happens afterwards isn't so apparent. And the answer to that question is, that depends. What happens when we die? That depends. It depends on whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, a believer or an unbeliever. Let's start with believers. Point number two. The souls of believers go immediately to heaven. Praise the Lord. The souls of believers go immediately to heaven. To heaven. And if there's any doubt in your mind as I say that, I hope that over these next few minutes, the Lord will remove it all as I show you from the scriptures why that is clearly true. Our souls go immediately to heaven. Our souls as in the essence of who we are, the, the core of our being, our being. You are not who you are by virtue of the body that you inhabit. Yes, your body is important. Yes, your body influences what you can do as who you are. Like, not everybody is a Michael Jordan. Not everybody is a Carl Lewis track star. So our bodies influence who we are. And just because, you know, the whole thing, um, you can be whatever you want to be, you know, the, the graduation, typical graduation talk. You know, you can be anything you want to be. Dream, dream big. That's like the biggest lie that graduates hear every single year. It's nuts. You can't. You can't. If that were true, I would, I would be a lot of things. <laughs> I dream big. No, no. Our souls, our, our personality and, and our thoughts and our inclinations and our wirings and, and everything else that makes us who we are, all the in, intangible characteristics that, that comprise us, And the fact is, our bodies die, but our souls don't. Our souls don't. And those who are in Christ, believers, go immediately to heaven. That that place of glorious bliss and perfect fellowship with Jesus and the saints. 
we go to immediately to heaven. It's what theologians call the intermediate state. When our souls go to heaven, intermediate, because it's the time between life as we know it now and life after Jesus returns. In between those two time periods is heaven. After we die, life as we know it now, we die, we go to heaven, it's the intermediate state between now if we die and when Jesus returns and we receive our glorified bodies. The point here is that our immediate entrance to heaven upon death is, in, is implied in several passages of Scripture, and I want to show them to you. In fact, I want you to see the first one in your own Bible. So turn with me about 30 pages further to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Romans, then 1 Corinthians, and then 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians verse 5, Apostle Paul is speaking here. He says, so we are always of good courage. He's just been talking about the fact that there is life after death for believers, awesome life after death for believers. And, and so we're always of good courage because we have a future with God. And then he expands on it. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not sight. In other words, while we are still living, we are away from the physical presence of Jesus. We're not away from his spiritual presence. Where two or three are gathered, he is here among us. His spirit lives and dwells within us, for sure. Do not get me wrong here. But we are away from his physical presence, where he now resides in heaven. That's, that, that's what it says. We know that while we are at home in the body, right here, right now, we are away from the Lord. But we're still encouraged, verse 7, because we live by faith. We trust that one day we will be in his presence. We trust by faith. Verse 8, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Just read that again, verse 8. The implication being that when we die, our soul is separated from our body. It's away from it, and it is present with the Lord in, in heaven because that's where he is right now. Home, home with a capital H for those who are in Christ. And notice the either-or sense of it all. We're either at home in our body and away from the Lord, or we're away from our body and at home with the Lord. It's one or the other. It's either or, implying that it's immediate. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Three quick thoughts here. To be absent from the body, just reinforcing this point that the souls of believers go immediately to heaven, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's no gap, there's no waiting, there's no pause, there's no nothing. 
That sums up 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. The second thought comes from 1 Thessalonians 5.10, which gets at the immediacy of our transition from death to heaven even more explicitly. Where Paul also says, Jesus died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, and that's a metaphor for death that Paul uses from time to time, sleep. He says, Jesus died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Whether we're, whether we're here now or whether we're dead, we live, we are with Christ in, in life or death. It's the same idea that Paul expressed in Romans 8.38. I am sure he said that neither death nor life will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no separation and no waiting. There's no separation and no waiting. Again, reinforcing this point that the souls of believers go immediately to heaven. And how good is that? And how good is this? Let that soak into your heart for a second. Uh, past your head and into your soul. That there's no waiting, there's no separation from Jesus. To die and be away from our bodies is to be alive and at home. At home with Jesus. Where he is that we may be also. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. And it happens the moment we breathe our last. Praise God for that. And then the third thought comes from Philippians 1.21. Philippians 1.21 where Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live, Paul is saying, is one great big opportunity to glorify the Lord. One great big opportunity to make Jesus look good. One great big opportunity to be salt and light Hopefully you haven't forgotten that from earlier in the month. To be salt and light to anybody and everybody you possibly can. That's, that's to live in Christ. For me to live is Christ. And then Paul says, and to die is even better. It's gain. Like what? How can, that, how can that be? How can dying be better than living for Jesus? How can dying be better than glorifying him to the greatest extent possible here on earth? Well, because once again, we get to be with him right away. We get to be with him right away. That's how dying is gain. And we, we don't just get to glorify him and and. and see him through the spiritual eyes of our heart in a dim sort of way, but we get to see him face to face. We get to be with him hand in hand. If we didn't, if we didn't get to see him and be with him immediately, death wouldn't be better at all. It would be worse. It would be worse. And then Paul adds to the argument in verse 23. He says, I am hard pressed between the two. That is between living and dying. Because both options are so good. So good. I'm hard pressed between the two. And then he settles it. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. 
for that is far better. My desire, Paul says, is to, to depart and be with him, implying that it's right away. Right away. It makes me think of that Chris Rice song. I almost said old Chris Rice song. Maybe for some of you, you are young enough, you still think in terms of 10 or 15 years is old. It was yesterday for me. That old Chris Rice song, Untitled Hymn. You remember that? By the way, as a a quick aside, I I wonder, someday I'm going to ask him, like, did you, like, somehow, I just think that's the the, the greatest uh, title for a song you could ever come up with, Untitled Hymn. What I want to know is, was that like your default after going through, you know, 15 different iterations for a title and none of them worked. And she's like, man, I got to get this to the publisher. So I'm just going to call it Untitled Hymn. Or were you like, man, let's just call this Untitled Hymn and let it speak however it speaks. That's all for free. (laughs) The last verse goes like this, and this is why it makes me think of all this. He says, and with your final heartbeat, kiss the world goodbye. Then go in peace and laugh on glory's side and fly to Jesus, fly to Jesus, fly to Jesus and live. When you die as a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ our Lord, through faith and repentance, you go immediately to his side in heaven. Praise you, Lord. Now, that has some far-reaching implications that I also want you to know. Especially so because it refutes and negates several unbiblical beliefs regarding death. The first is this. There's no such thing as soul sleep. Maybe you've heard somebody speak of that. Maybe you haven't. It's a thing in church world, some parts. There's no such thing as soul sleep. Soul sleep is the belief that when believers die, they go into a nebulous state of unconscious existence until Christ returns. Neither alive here on earth nor with Jesus in heaven and your soul is in some sort of stasis. Soul sleep. And those who, and and they say you stay in that state until Christ returns. At which point you're raised and received glorified body and so on. And that part is true. And those who adhere to such a belief usually base it on scriptures that describe death as a lack of activity. Like in Ecclesiastes 9.10, it says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. These are great verses for making the most of our lives, by the way. These aren't throwaway verses. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, the grave, to which you are going. There's no earthly activity when we die. Our souls just sleep, some people say, as they read that verse. And maybe you could see how they would come to that conclusion if that's all they're reading or that they take that verse as preeminent above all other verses. Or how about Psalm 115, 17? 
It says, The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. Silence. There's no praise and there's no sound in the grave. And when you connect those verses to others that refer to death as sleep, the whole idea of soul sleep seems kind of legit. You know, that, that instead of going immediately into the presence of God when we die, we exist in a state of limbo. The problem is, such a conclusion runs contrary to the New Testament verses that we looked at. Verses that clearly indicate an immediate transition from death to heaven. And so how do we resolve that? I think it's this way. It's to realize that the perspective expressed in Ecclesiastes and Psalms views death from our standpoint. When someone dies, when someone is laid in the grave or coffin, all we see is a dead body with absolutely nothing going on. From our standpoint. But when we look at the full picture laid out in the full scope of Scripture, like we saw in 2 Corinthians 5 and Philippians 1 and 1 Thessalonians 5, when we incorporate and look at the whole picture, death is a momentary transi transition, just like that. It's a momentary transition, which is one of the many reasons why we shouldn't, as believers, look at death as an absolute enemy. In some respects, it is an enemy because we're no longer able to glorify God, glorify Christ while here on earth. So it's no longer Christ. So in some respects, it's an enemy, but it's not nearly as large as we make it out to be because it is the instant portal to life with Christ in heaven. The immediate state in which we go. So there's nothing unconscious or inactive about our death. There's no such thing as soul sleep. Second, the second implication, and I'm quite certain that most, if not all of you, have heard of this, is that there's no such thing as purgatory. There's no such thing as purgatory. Purgatory is the supposed place where the souls of believers go to be further purified and further punished for sin, purified from sin and punished for sin, until you're ready to be admitted to heaven, until you uh, attain to that standard of holiness that God requires in his presence. That's purgatory. And I'm not making that up. I'm using... The definition of Catholic theologians in that respect, except for the word supposed. It's the supposed place where the souls of believers go to be further purified and punished for sin until they're ready to be admitted into heaven. The problem is, there's absolutely no biblical support for it. Just none. It's a purely man-made belief that was declared by the Catholic Church in 1438. And the scriptures that they try to cite in order to support the belief that they came up with in the uh, 15th century there, the scriptures that they cite are inferences at best, you know, things that they read into the text at best, and, well, they have nothing to do with it at worst. 
like Matthew 5, 25 and 26. There are a handful of verses that they cite. This is the best one. I'm not taking the worst one. This is the best one that they would cite. This is where Jesus is using um, some illustrations in the Sermon on the Mount to warn about the dangers of anger and a lack of reconciliation in our relationships. Okay, that, that's the immediate context there. And he says in verse 25, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and, the gar and you be put in prison. Prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Once again, it's an illustration based on first century legal practices to make the very practical point that anger and lack of reconciliation leads to no good. But Catholic theologians say that the word prison there just before the last sentence, second to the last line on the left, Catholic theologians say that the word prison in verse 25 is a reference to the spiritual prison of purgatory from which you will escape only after you have paid the last penny for your sin, only after you've paid the final and full and necessary punishment for your sin, only uh, until you have attained absolute purity from sin that remains in you. It's a blatant example of reading something into a passage instead of letting it speak for itself. And there are others that they cite that are even bigger stretches. I've included them in my notes. I won't list them out for you here now. You can go online and get my notes. But the biggest problem with the belief in purgatory is that it flies in the face of clear biblical teaching about salvation in the Bible and our full release from punishment and guilt. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Period. Period. Or scriptures like Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are free from any further bondage. We are free from any further condemnation. We are free from any further punishment. There is no condemnation that remains for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who are connected to him through faith and repentance. There's no more punishment. There's no more judgment. There's no more blame. There's no more anything. Or as Hebrews 10 says it, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, perfected for all time, in God's eyes, we are perfected. We are justified. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, those who are becoming more and more like Christ, those who are living for him, those who are living out that justification. Not perfectly, God, help us for sure. Not perfectly, but certainly. So not only is there no biblical support for purgatory, it flies in the face of clear biblical teaching. Not to mention the fact that just like soul sleep, it runs contrary to the verses indicating an immediate transition to heaven when believers die. It's the second truth in the first part of this mini-series of our personal eschatology, our own end times, if you will. 
And I hope and I have prayed that this will fill you with such peace and such confidence, whether you think you're facing death 50 years from now or you know you're facing death five years from now and might be facing death five minutes from now. I hope that this fills you with such confidence and such peace and even such anticipation that you will get to be with Jesus immediately, that you can hardly contain it. I hope. I hope we overflow, Coramdale. And the truth that Jesus has prepared a place for us. And as soon as we die, we get to go there. Fly away. Let's pray. Father, oh God, by your spirit, will you impress these truths on our hearts and minds as only you can? And will you use them, Lord, to fill our souls literally with glory divine? Do it, Lord. Help us to rest in these principles from your word with great confidence and hold fast with great resolve, knowing that you hold the future and you hold us so that we all get to heaven and we all see Jesus in whose name we pray.